I can't decide what's more astounding, the fact that Spring Branch is 25 years old this month, or that I have an 11-year-old daughter. Who made that video? <laughs> See, I was 11 when this church was founded. And so I was thinking about this as I prepared this message, and I was thinking about that time of my life. That was spring semester of sixth grade. And I have to confess to you that this big event of this church being founded, which went on to shape my life in numerous ways, was actually only the second significant event, not only of that semester, but of that weekend. Because what some of you may not know, some of you may, was that the night before something epic occurred on our television screens, which were somewhat thicker than they are now. You see, the night before was the Save by the Bell high school graduation. <laughs> Kelly, Zach, Slater, Screech, they all graduated from Bayside High School, and I was there crying in front of the television, wondering how could we go on? We'd been through so much together. Our journey had been so rich. They meant a lot to me. How do we become who we are? How are we formed? I was thinking about this because how can an event like the founding of a church and the end of a sitcom have equal pathos in the mind of a sixth grader? Today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about these questions that I love to explore of how do we grow and how do we become. And we're going to talk about the word nurture. Nurture is the process of caring for and encouraging the growth of something or someone. Caring for something in order that it grows, in order that it develops, in order that it flourishes and thrives. And today we're talking about nurturing lives of faith. Two things before we, get, we begin. First, if you have young people in your care, I hope this morning that you will leave more equipped. But I hope everyone this morning will leave more reflective on their own journey, on the nurture that you have received, and the way we nurture each other in communities like this, regardless of age. Second, it is God who forms, which is why prayer for those in your care is the transformative process and power for them as they grow. But today, we are talking about how we are shaped, and how to shape daily, ordinary life with faith in order that those in our care and in our communities will grow. I recently discovered the work of Ivy Beckwith, a pastor in Connecticut. She wrote a small book with a non-fantastic title called Formational Children's Ministry. And it's incredible. Because what she does is she summarizes a process that educators, theologians, psychologists, and parents have wrestled with for years with three words. She takes spiritual nurture and she says it in three words. These are the words. Story, ritual, relationship. And this morning, we're going to look at those three words and talk about this shape of nurture, and then we're going to see how it plays out in Scripture. Let's start with story. There are four types of stories that are crucial to spiritual nurture. The first one is one we most often think of, and this is stories of the Bible. The Bible is full of the narratives of God's work in the world, God's work with His people, and God's work with the church. But how do we connect our story with God's story? How do we connect God's story with the story of the little people who are in our care? For example, take the Easter story. The Easter story is the core drama of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ, who was himself God, was wrongly accused, then crucified and buried, but three days later the grave and the tomb was empty and he was seen alive. How do we connect this with our children and our adolescents as they grow in order to shape their lives of faith? Let's look at preschoolers, okay? These are our four 
three, four, and five-year-olds, roughly. How do we know what preschoolers value? And to answer this, I have a really scientific process that I call the frozen test. It goes like this. Which princess do you like better, Anna or Elsa? Now, for years, I have been advocating for Anna. I feel like she's more textured. I feel like we see her struggle. We see her grow, change, fall in love, persevere, overcome, and then sacrifice her life for her sister, right? It should be Anna. What does every single preschooler say? What is no doubt my daughter dressed as this morning at church? Elsa. Is it the one braid? Is it the song? Is it the cocktail dress? What is it? So we ask them, why Elsa? And they will tell you, she's got the power. She has the ice power. Because preschoolers are very focused on power. Who has it and who doesn't? Who has more? Who uses it for good to beat the bad? So in Easter, when we're connecting it with our preschoolers, we celebrate that God has the strongest power in the universe. And Jesus is the superest superhero ever. On Friday, it looked like all the bad guys had won. But on Sunday, God raised Jesus and proved that God's power and Jesus' gentle love is able to defeat any power in the universe. Okay, so what about middle schoolers? Think back on middle schoolers. Maybe you have one in your home. Maybe you acutely remember being one. Middle schoolers are beginning to ask this question of who am I? But they're not necessarily able to articulate it yet. So often they're asking it with their actions, with their behaviors. And often the only way they can answer it is with, this is who I'm not. I'm not my parents. I'm not my teachers. I'm not my siblings. And this is who I am. I am with these people. These are my friends. So middle schoolers, when we talk about the Easter story, they connect with the humiliation of Jesus, especially in view of being wrongly accused. And they connect this with the story of Jesus comforting people, comforting his friends. They connect with Peter denying Jesus, but then being forgiven and reinstated. They also begin to recognize themselves in the friend group of Jesus, in their fear and their grief and their anger and then their disbelief at his resurrection. There are three other types of stories that we can use in nurture. Stories of the church. How has God been working through the church for centuries? We are not the first ones to gather as a church. So how do we tell the stories of the ancient church and how it prevailed in rough political climates, how it prevailed during wars, how it prevailed in all sorts of obstacles and is still alive today? Stories of the community. And this gets more local. Spring Branch, what is your founding story? Is it told for the benefit of those who were there and the benefit of those who weren't? So that they both understand the reasons and the miracles behind the presence of this particular body of believers. And finally, stories of faith. These are personal stories of people's faith journeys, but they're also everyday stories of the ways God is working in people's lives. Do we tell these stories? Our children need to hear these stories. We need to articulate them, and we need to hear ourselves tell these stories to remind ourselves, our children, and each other of God's presence in the most ordinary moments. The next element to this shape of spiritual nurture is ritual. Ritual, ritual is quite simply this. It's a series of actions performed according to a prescribed order. It's something we do over and over and over again as a way to remember or reinforce the values that the ritual represents. We do ritual all the time, all the time. We're going to have three types of family rituals. You look up here, you're doing these sorts of rituals. Celebrations, 
holidays or rites of passage? How do you do birthdays? How do you do Christmas? Traditions, now these connect to actions of the past. In our family, where my mother's side of the family is Puerto Rican, we celebrate Three Kings Day. Nobody else at the children's school is celebrating Three Kings Day. We do it because it's connecting us to our family, the past. So on January 5th, we put out shoe boxes with grass and water for the camels. And in the morning, the children get presents, which is exactly what every child needs on January 6th, more presents, from the Three Kings. Because that's a tradition, and that's how we connect our children to my grandparents and to our family from that side. And then routines. These are the most frequent, the least planned, and they work to organize our lives. We do ritual all the time. Children need ritual. Adults need ritual. Have you ever listened to an adult order something at Starbucks? You are seeing ritual. You are seeing them order their lives. When we sit down to eat together, that's ritual. When we dress up for church on Christmas Eve, that too is ritual. When the children are asked to find their square on the carpet before talking about the weather for the day and saluting the flag, that's ritual. Children formulate ritual in their play as they feed people, put them to bed, discipline them, celebrate them, and comfort them. That's ritual. Ritual orders and it reinforces because ritual is story embodied. Rituals are stories with no speaking required. And this is really important because a large number of children and adults develop outside the typical continuum and often without the use and mastery of speech. This church has a fantastic special needs ministry which gives witness to the fact that there are those among us who develop differently. And not only are they among us, but we need them to be a part of our community because of their representation of God's image that we are missing if they are not in our community. And ritual is how we all tell stories together. And it's how we bring safety and comfort and re reinforce value and identity for each individual regardless of cognitive speech and motor abilities. The church has a very rich history of ritual. We think, oh, that's just because it's churchy. Well, actually, in the history of the church for a long time, the majority of the participants did not have access to education or literacy. So ritual was how they told God's stories, the repeated ordered action over and over and over again. We shape lives with faith-based rituals, and they do not have to be complex or elaborate, just predictable. This is when we pray and how we pray. This is when and where we go to church. This is how we worship. This is how we celebrate seasons and nature as part of God's gift to us. This is how we mark time after school and on birthdays. And this is how we set apart the most ordinary moments and name them as holy because they too are part of God's story. The third part of the shape of spiritual nurture is relationship. And I know this church is one that values relationships. You just finished your series on relationships and you have a high value of learning how to navigate relationships and to to deal with each other well and in love with skills. So I'm just gonna bring up two tensions that relationships teach us in regards to culture. These are competition versus cooperation and self-sufficiency versus community. Competition versus cooperation is a tension lived out daily in our homes, okay? In a culture that lifts up competition from a very young age, there are very few environments left that force cooperation like the family home. Isn't it fun? Okay, so cooperation is being worked out all over the place in your family, in your dining room, in your minivan. 
and it's instilling not only relational skills, but relational values. In this house, in this family, our relationships are more important than winning, than getting, than having. Children can share. They can share bedrooms and bathrooms and screens. They can do it. It is so hard. But this is one of the last places that forces it on them. Resist the desire to undermine cooperation for the sake of short-term peace. When my girls complain, I always say, but think what a great college roommate you will be. And spouse. And I have to add, follower of Jesus. Because living out life in a community of believers really authentically is not unlike too many people sharing a bathroom. Am I right? And more bathrooms and bigger bathrooms will not prepare us for the great work that is loving people who can be annoying. And as our families best teach us, we can all be annoying. The second tension relationships teach us is the tension of self-sufficiency versus community. This is important because as those of us who are mothers, maybe it's just me, but probably not, we face a temptation all the time to feel bad because we're not everything we're supposed to be all the time. That sentence did not make much sense. Let me say it again. We feel the pressure to be all things to all people all the time and look good while doing it. That's kind of where we all are. And it doesn't help our kids. We, through our own actions, are teaching those in our care and those around us, we have a choice. One of two things. One, we must be self-sufficient. We can do it all. Or two, we have the gift of community. As we model relationships outside the family, we shape our children's lives with the value of community and the gift and the relief that we are not alone. There are people who love us and care for us who have gifts that we don't have. And it is good to give and receive help on a daily basis. When we ask for help, when we say, I don't know how to do that, but I know someone who does, we infuse those in our care with the message of how rich and necessary it is to belong to community and how self-sufficiency is not a value, but a burden. The video you saw a lot of the people interviewed there are from a small group that we are in up in Williamsburg, and we call it our intergenerational small group. So it is adults and it is children and it sometimes works and it sometimes doesn't. And it's wonderful because there is something really powerful as a parent to sit in a room with other adults and watch them talk about their faith in front of my kids. I can't do it all. I can't do much of it, honestly. And so we have community. And that instills in our kids the value that your parents are not all you need. You need so much more. And God has given that to you in the community. Self-sufficiency is not a value, it's a burden, but we have to model that for our children by living it out in community. Earlier we went to the Easter story for preschoolers and for middle schoolers. I want to pick up somewhere later with us, for those of us who are not schoolers on any end anymore, where many of us are, with a final Easter story found in Luke 24. Luke 24, starting at verse 13, says this, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. 
Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So what's going on here? Jesus died on Friday. He was crucified. On Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb. The tomb is empty. The angels have appeared to them and said, why are you looking for him? He's alive. The women take off running and they go find the other followers who are huddled together, scared and sad. And they say, nope, he's alive. And the followers are confused and don't really believe the women. It's kind of been a day. Okay, so then we have these two people heading out of, heading out of town. They're getting out of town. And on the road, Jesus resurrected comes up to them and they don't recognize him. And so he starts asking them, well, why are you sad? And they're like, who is this crazy person? Everybody knows what's going on. Why doesn't he know? Okay, fine, we'll tell you. And so they launch into the story of why they're sad and what their hopes had been in following Jesus and how that really hadn't worked out. Scripture does not tell us why they are leaving town. So think about it. They're in this group, the inner circle, who is all together. They're not with the group anymore. They're leaving. Why are they leaving? We can guess. And I think we can guess based on three words we can find in the verse. We'll put up those three words that you can see. The words are this. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. They're getting out. They're done. They're out. They're over it. We had hoped, meaning we used to hope, but now we don't anymore. This is what we call a crisis. A crisis of life not being what we thought that it would be. Do we all have these moments? A running list of all the we had hopes in regards to our families, in regards to our jobs, in regards to our health. We had hoped we would not be alone right now. We had hoped that our marriage would not be like this. We had hoped that we would not be in the hospital again with our child. We had hoped that this issue would have resolved. We had hoped that we would be healed. The list goes on and on and on. Our list of had hopes. But what's going on here is even something more and something we tend to shy away from in talking about faith. This is a crisis of faith itself not being what they thought it would be. This is not how we understood it, they're saying. Since we were kids, this is not what it was supposed to be like, and this is not what God was supposed to be like. We had hoped until yesterday, or Friday, but we don't anymore. And that's where our faith story stops, but maybe that's okay, we're telling ourselves, because maybe that's what it means to grow up. Except one small significant detail. Jesus Christ, who had died right before their eyes, three days earlier, stood across from them, and what they felt to be the largest disappointment of their lives. 
and they were so focused on how they thought things were supposed to be that they couldn't recognize him. And do you know what he did? And this part always gives me chills. Luke 24 goes on to tell us that he, Jesus, went through scripture and showed them himself. And then when they got to town, he joined them for a meal, and it was when he blessed the food that they recognized him. And then they immediately returned to Jerusalem and joined the others. Okay, wait, let's look at that again. He showed them himself in scripture. He prayed a blessing over a joint meal. And then in recognizing him, sent them on to rejoin the community. We have story, ritual, relationship. Friends, Jesus nurtured them in crisis. Jesus Christ himself, alive and resurrected, followed these two wounded warriors down the road and away from the city, and he met them and he nurtured them. He cared for them in order that they may grow, that the place where they were or even wanted to be was not where they remained. He pointed them towards the story of his work through history, his unexpected and surprising work. He met them through the most common of rituals, the meal, and his presence turned them back towards community and relationship. Jesus alive was standing in their midst as they articulated their disappointments, and they missed him. Do you know what our youngest toddlers and preschools think is alive? Everything. I've made lunch for my daughter's blanket before. But something happens as we age, doesn't it? When we, the pain and the disappointment takes its toll, we forget. We forget even the miracle of our own hearts beating inside of us. And we forget the sacredness of our neighbor living and breathing across the table or down the street. And we most certainly forget that Jesus is alive in the midst of our shattered hopes, ready to show us that not only has he, yes, been at work all along, but he is doing something amidst our rubble that we weren't even capable of dreaming. See, so often as parents and teachers, we consider nurture a form of preventative care. If we can get this right, if we do this well, they won't have to go through that. But over and over in the Bible, we see stories of God's nurture being palliative care for crises that not only seem inevitable, but part of the growth process. Remember, we nurture things in order that they may grow. And just as growth in the natural world occurs after pruning, after leaves falling in long winters of bare branches, growth occurs after crisis. With these two people heading towards Emmaus, it was when they hit the crisis that they were able to see with new eyes. Not only where Jesus had been working throughout history and their lives, but how he was here resurrected, doing something new in their midst that they could not have imagined. Growth occurs through the crisis, through disorientation, followed by reorientation, through tears shed, followed by new eyes to see. When doing my extensive academic research on Saved by the Bell to prepare for this message, I said to Travis, you know that show was only on for four years? He said, yeah, I guess it would have gotten awkward after that. I mean, how long can you keep them in high school? Well, in February of 2015, we found out when Jimmy Fallon planned to Save by the Bell reunion on The Tonight Show. And I considered showing some of these pictures, but you can't unsee that. 
I will say, as weird as it is, interestingly, Zach Morris looks exactly the same, further cementing the truth that he was a rave hairspray-produced hologram the entire time. See, there's always two temptations, aren't there, in life? There's the temptation to stay, and then there's the temptation to go back. We do this in terms of our faith journeys as well. So often in crisis, someone will say to me, if I could just get back, if I could get back to how I used to believe, if I could get back to how I used to understand things. But the entirety of Scripture shows God not calling people back, but forward and not allowing them to stay in their previous understandings, but giving them new eyes to see the new ways he is working. Even crisis gets comfortable after a while, does it not? Anything familiar gets comfortable, and so the temptation is to stay, or it's to go back. And Jesus continually calls us forward in community. As we nurture our children and our students and our grandchildren, and our friends, and our various people in our church community. We receive the solemn responsibility of caring for them, of sharing stories and shaping rituals and building relationships in order that they may grow, not stay, not go back. Trusting and praying that the God of peace, the God of compassion, the God who is more alive than ever, is the one who forms and shapes each of us regardless of ability, regardless of age, regardless of season, to both see and participate in his ever new work in the world. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for each person you've brought here this morning. Thank you for the relationships they represent. Thank you for the work that they represent. Thank you for your image that they represent and the ways you have poured your beauty and your goodness into them. I pray for them as they care for those that you've entrusted to them as they nurture towards growth. I pray for their own hearts as you nurture them to new places on this journey. Thank you that you are our companion. Thank you that you are our hope. And thank you that you are our very great reward. We thank you for your love, and we thank you that you are alive with us in this place. In your name we pray. Amen.